0: Hey, everybody. This is Emmett. I'm here with John. And this is your weekly installment of Exhaust, your podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today, we are going to be talking to Jennifer Miller over at Dartmouth about American ideas of East Asia from the neoconservatives to Trump and what that means. Uh, John, you pretty much produced this one. So do you want to talk a little bit? Um, before we get into it?
1: Sure. Yeah. So it actually started with you when you messaged me um, about one of Jennifer Miller's articles called Neo-Confucians and Neo-Conservatives, which that caught my eye, honestly, because I'm just into like reading about Confucianism. So I was like, okay, I'll do this. And I sat down and ignored my work and like read all of it in one sitting and you know it I think it spoke exactly to the heart of the podcast, which is like let's take a look at a really specific intellectual current over three or four decades. who made it up? Where are they from? what were they saying to each other? Where did they get these ideas and interestingly, in this article, how do they directly connect to the ways in which people in Japan, South Korea, Taiwan and Singapore are also conceiving of themselves and their national identities, which are now kind of being built and reformed around their new position in the world as capitalist economies. Um, which in the case of South Korea and Japan, which possess like significant industries, which will grow over this period of time and how this helps us make sense of what's going on today how we interpret our relationships with East Asia today and the very public ways in which Donald Trump has interpreted our relationship with Japan um, ever since the 80s and until now. I think it's actually pretty interesting because in your article, let's not be laughed at anymore. Donald Trump in Japan from the 1980s to the present. One of the big things that I noticed was it's not just limited in a way to Trump. When we talk about sort of like these overtures to protectionism in a way Mm -hmm. like Reagan and many others, uh, Nixon and Kissinger. Um, There were a lot of conservative reactions to Japanese industrial policy that we're sort of like, you're not playing by the rules of the global free market. And so we'll have to do something about that, whether it be tariffs or something to kind of level this playing field between us and you. It was interesting how you point out that there is a lot of seeming noise about that, like a lot of media talk, a lot of mm-hmm. speeches and things like that. But when it comes to actually addressing that as an existing like material relationship, It's really clear that from Donald Trump to like Reagan and Nixon and Kissinger, like nobody was actually interested in changing the fundamental structure of this playing field. It was more... I couldn't tell, like, it almost felt like this is simply a cynical thing to sort of rile up a voting base on some level.
2: Yeah, I think it was both. So I should have sent you a third article you wrote, which <laughs> is about uh, the Reagan administration in Japan and fears of American decline, which is what got me like started on this whole topic.
0: Oh, wow. Well, we'll be sure. Um, Please send it to us because we'll link yeah. it in the show notes for everybody.
2: Um, I can't do that. That one hasn't been published yet. So um. it's coming out in an edited volume next year. So it's, I think it's really good to bring up Nixon and Kissinger with this because actually this was, Japan was really formative for Nixon's thinking in ways that are often forgotten. Um, you know, Nixon in the early 70s is facing the beginning of stagflation and the clear what scholars now talk about is kind of this sort of deindustrializing trend in America and the rise of foreign competitors and things like this. And he's struggling with what he's going to do with this. And then at one point he issues this, he like has this weekend retreat with his advisors and they all get Windbreakers and they're going to solve this giant economic problem and they spends time staring into the fire thinking about what he's going to do. And he issues this set of policies that are now known as the Nixon shocks. And what this is sort of most well known for is that it essentially severed the U.S. being on the gold standard and it ended the so-called Bretton Woods policy, which was this sort of global economic management policy that emerged out of this conference held in New Hampshire during World War II. What Nixon was very clear about was that one of his motivations for Bretton Woods for, for doing this was to stick it to Japan. He and Kissinger felt Japan, as you say it exactly, didn't play by the rules. They were freeloaders. They didn't do anything in Vietnam. That's not fully true. Japan did not send troops in Vietnam because it's constitutionally limited, but it supported it through American military bases and things like this. The Japanese government was actually facing a very large anti-war movement in Japan, but that they thought that Japan were freeloaders. They didn't do anything. So they're going to stick it to the Japanese by like making this massive change in, in the global economy and not even giving them a heads up. Similarly, in the 80s, Reagan, one thing I trace in this other article is how Reagan's sort of rhetoric kind of changed over the 80s. That being he came into office talking about free trade, but over the 80s, this slowly shifted to free and fair trade, which is, which is a difference. And of course, this is this definition of fairness where that's somewhat similar to Donald Trump's definition of fairness, which is the, I get what I want, and that is fair, similar to my two-year-old's definition of fairness.
0: uh, Fairness for me, but not for thee.
2: Yes, yeah. And so that shifts, and the Reagan administration, on the one hand, spends a lot of time in these like detailed negotiations with Japan over tariffs on things like oranges, beef, Little League bats, like all sorts of stuff. On the other hand, what member what some members of the Reagan administration really want is for Japan to fundamentally change its industrial policy. They even embark on this like sort of strategy In the mid 80s, called Moss, market oriented sector selection or something like that, where they're essentially going to try to make inroads into Japan, certain sectors like semiconductors that they see the Japanese are dominating and try to get them to change industrial policy. Um, They try to file at one point, they label Japan an unfair trading partner. None of this does anything now. One could say that perhaps the Reagan administration set an unrealistic target in trying to get an internal state to change how a state to change its internal behavior just for one trading partner. One could say maybe the Reagan administration wasn't fully committed to this. And scholars have sort of gone back and forth on this. You know, Should we think of Reagan as like this committed free trader? Or should we actually realize he was quite willing to rely on protectionism? I think a point that's important to think about in the 80s that's hard to remember with our sort of polarized politics today, although we see it a little bit in the ways that someone like Bernie Sanders is critical of something like the Trans-Pacific Partnership or free trade or something like that, which is that in the 80s, there were a lot of Democrats that engaged in this too in questions of protectionism. Uh, One big issue in the early 80s was the question of local content legislation, which is laws that say that a certain amount of parts for, say, a car have to be made in the United States. And you know, the UAW, the United Auto Workers, was behind that. There were a lot of Democrats that were behind that. And in fact, some of Reagan's protectionist moves were trying to sort of prevent the Democrats from being able to own that issue. Um, So when when
0: unions were still in sort of the political running in a way that they are now
2: yeah yeah and when i think the partisan divide wasn't quite as clear as it is now and you also didn't and i mean it was in some ways don't get me wrong i don't want to say the 80s were less partisan than today in some ways they weren't in some ways they weren't but yeah it, it's a reminder that for a long time those issues really crossed party lines um in a way that they don't always today
1: yeah it's i think it kind of dovetails a little bit with how the general American left used to not be open borders too. like they used to take the other side of that. And I think it was similarly in the interest of like concerns about the American worker, that there were leftist immigration concerns as well as leftist protectionist concerns, I think, which now it seems I don't know, it seems like to me, both issues are largely abandoned by anybody, but mainly right wing thinkers or very marginalized leftist thinkers.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think People, I think in terms of borders, Trump is very like, the borders need to be close to everything except money,
1: basically.
2: Yes. Right? He has no issues with transnational capital. He's made his career on it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, he would not have a real estate career if not for foreign capital and the ease with which it can cross borders and i think that's that's something that like quinn slobodian has written about right that we shouldn't think of this populist wave as sort of not it has its own vision of globalism and globalization yeah
0: i think that's an excellent
2: um but on the other hand i think you're right that on the left borders and immigration have become one issue and borders and trade have become a different issue, right? They've come, become sort of separated from each other. I think it's fairly rare on the left now to see anti-closing like closing borders for immigration. Most of the discussion is about reforming the immigration system in various ways or opening it up. Whereas you do still, I think, see in some areas on the left discussions about trade and trade regimes and things like that.
1: Yeah, I guess I was just typically thinking of the, maybe it would be more like to say a mainstream reaction to um, tariffs on trade with China was Mm -hmm. typically like most people weren't really sure what it was about, but they knew it was bad. Yeah. And I think that kind of characterizes how most people conceive of trade these days, even like left or right, unless, Mm -hmm. you know. Unless they're really into, like, looking into it or researching it, probably they'll just feel like open trade is good, like, for but, everybody.
2: Yeah, I think that, I think a lot of that, too, like, this sort of, like, instinctive reactions to tariffs as bad is generally because our understanding of tariffs is that they make things more expensive, right? And I think because we in the United States really equate consumption with free choice, Right. Yeah. Consumption. There's a great book about this um, by Elizabeth Cohen called Consumers Republic.
0: Oh, I just bought it. Yeah,
2: (laughs) that's a really yeah. It's about the post-war United States. I teach from that book. I don't have them read it, but I I teach a class on Cold War culture and I teach from that book. And we talk about the various ways in which consumption becomes equated with democracy and choice and liberty in post-war America. And I think that's still the case. Um, You know, the most famous example to go back to Richard Nixon is this kitchen debate in 1960 that when he and Nikita Khrushchev they're walking through this sample house at a cultural exposition and nixon explicitly says like let people choose the kind of government the kind of soup the kind of refrigerator or something like that that they want and he's like equating those things right being able to pick your washing machine is the same as like living in a democratic society
0: right essentially. It, it reminds me of something that the zizek said where he was just like i don't care how the water comes through the tap i just want it to happen like I don't want to have to pick in the market like who supplies what is going to come to my house. And I was like, yeah, I mean, that's the non-totally-consumers-republic um, buffet of options uh, idea that, that we have of governance. And I think one of the things that I wonder about with that is the sort of neoconservative reaction to mm-hmm. it that you talk about. There's sort of this fear of moral decay that yeah. also happens as this consumer choice idea of freedom starts to proliferate and that has its own east asian concerns as well
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so yeah if i may editorialize a little bit so we've been doing a series on christopher lash's book um i'm blanking sorry
0: revolt of the elites
1: revolt of the elites thank you and i noticed uh rereading neo-confucians and neo-conservatives that A lot of what concerns Christopher Lash is also a lot of what concerns the mainline neoconservative reaction happening in the 70s and 80s. -hmm. And it was interesting because Lash has kind of had a little bit of a revival in the past, we'll say five years, because when I first heard of Christopher Lash, like no one knew what I was talking about, Um, like kind of forgotten by younger people. But ever since then, it's, like, quite easy to find people talking about him on Twitter. But I never really associated him with, like, the general neoconservative trend. But it seems like they were at least triangulating off of the same, like, five things that were worrying them. Oh,
2: yeah. So, Revolt of the Elites, that's... I'm just looking it up to remind myself. Did that first come out in 96? Yeah, Yeah, that was
1: his last book. His last book,
0: yeah. He died right after it came out.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's... I think there's no way Lash was not immersed in these other guys I'm writing about, like Irving Kristol, Daniel Bell. Oh, Daniel
0: Bell, especially. I, yeah, mean,
2: there are, I mean, there's simply no way.
1: Yeah. One really interesting thing that I would like to maybe get into is, so like Ronald P. Dorr, Peter Berger, Daniel Bell, Nathan Glazier, many more. These are all sociologists, like Ivy League sociologists, um, University of Chicago for Daniel Bell initially anthropology like uh knock um different people like that uh, others was it bella there's a lot of names yeah. i could throw out but ruth benedict's chrysanthemum and the sword yeah, like. bella,
2: Dor and bella i believe are historians but yeah
1: okay okay i was just so a lot of like social science or maybe actually bella's a
2: religion scholar he's not a historian he's a he's a i think he was in religion okay but he also is a historian
1: it was just interesting to me that like pretty prestigious social science formed the bedrock of neoconservatism in a way that I had never fully realized. And also the, like so many of these figures are like Herman Kahn, of course. Um, so many of these figures were like connected to the Congress for Cultural mm-hmm. uh, Freedom, the mm-hmm. CIA outfit mm-hmm. that was combating communism in Europe. Um, so many of these figures were connected to Uh, Trotskyite opposition parties to Mm -hmm. Stalinism Mm -hmm. in the early days. So it's Mm -hmm. sort of like neoconservatism is actually the like, you know, communist opposition sort of somehow transforms over the 20th century to turn into like moralists who engage in extremely ahistorical forms of thinking in order to like justify American hegemony. And it's really weird and interesting just to think about that. And I wasn't sure if you had anything
2: so what scholars a lot of scholars have talked about this and I know there's a we have a postdoc here at Dartmouth a guy named Daniel Stymonds Jenkins who's working on a book about Raymond Arone and neoconservatism and he's done a lot of work with the Congress of Cultural Freedom material and we that was a little bit of a like I it was just an article so I couldn't get into all of that but he's told me there are some interesting materials in the papers he's found when scholars have talked about kind of their sort of Trotskyist past, a lot of where they have related that to then how they're thinking in the 60s and 70s is this infatuation with the concept of the new class, so that they still sort of have this kind of structural critique that engages in the language of class, even as they're talking about class differently, like because the new class, right, is this idea that there is this class of Americans who sort of control certain aspects of society. So they are... The post-war baby boomer children or the people born during the war who've grown up in affluence and now are entering into professional life, they're the doctors, the journalists, the psychologists, the social workers, things like that, and that these are the people that are actually undermining the United States, that they have lost their faith in something like the Protestant ethic, that they control the media and education con, who is, I think in some ways, the most um, reactionary of the group of people people i wrote about um they are indoctrinating your children with the wrong things they control the media and they also want to keep the welfare state and the new class Neoconservatives claim don't want the welfare state because they actually care about welfare or social justice. Everything they say about that is just sort of a front. What they really care about is that they can profit off the welfare state and by pro and like they can control the welfare state and by controlling the welfare state, they can shape American capitalism and kind of destroy the free market. Is if you take it in its most sort of it's like a, a, a little bit of like I don't know if I'd say like conspiratorial, but it sounds a little bit co- conspiratorial. It's not that different from rhetoric you hear about the liberal elite media today.
0: Right. Or I was thinking about we had Olivier Jutel from the University of Otago on to talk about like blockchain imperialism in the South Pacific, which was uh quite fun. But we ended up talking about the Palantir IPO mm-hmm. and one of the indictments from um what was his name, like, uh, Carp um, and Teal, is how decadent the new Silicon Valley class is. Like, we wanted flying cars. Instead, we got likes and comments. And, like, you guys aren't really serious about national defense in the mm-hmm. way that we are and things like that. And I feel like there's a very similar, at least, structure of argument that's been inherited from the yeah. neocon imperial days. Yeah.
2: And in some ways, it's not that different from some of the kind of, uh, McCarthy-esque thinking you heard. Like Macar- like when Joe McCarthy came was in his heyday in the early 1950s, he would say things like it is the elites in the United States that are selling you out. It's the people who work in the State Department. It's the diplomats. It's the people at the top universities. They are secretly communists and they are the ones who are selling out America and like destroying America from within. There's like these like kind of fears of internal weakness are they have this sort of cyclical life and they constantly they constantly come back or maybe in a way maybe they're just always there and this is kind of the neoconservative version of that right
1: one kind of strange episode in the history of the rand corporation was um they lost like a lot of people because they were subjected to really brutal and severe anti-communist investigations uh i think herman (laughs) kahn said that he was like forever scarred by what they did to him there because I believe one of his relatives was a communist and they never found anything on a single researcher at Rand, but it basically drained a large portion of some of their expertise because they just didn't want to be there anymore after experiencing that, which was just so interesting because, you know, I never would have thought that Herman Kahn would have been like brutally scarred by McCarthyism You know, yet like somehow that ends up coming together in that really interesting way.
2: Oh, I I was just going to say, I think we tend to forget how wide the reach of that moment, that red scare moment was, you know, we often call it McCarthyism and even I called it McCarthyism, but that sort of really reduces it by just talking about this one man who then, you know, sort of gets dismissed as like this crazy kook who could have believed him, although I will say my students speak about the McCarthyist moment quite seriously post Trump election which has given everyone a new exposure to the power of demagoguery essentially. But we forget like how widespread this was. you know there were loyalty oaths and investigations everywhere. It went on for a long time. There were loyalty oaths, you know loyalty investigations all throughout the American government. There's a good um, and it had a serious impact on leftist politics in the United States. There's a book about this called um, by Landon stores called the Second New Deal or the Second Red Scare and the Unmaking of the new deal left or something like that that's exactly that's exactly about just how widespread this was and the the point you make is also interesting about rand because rand is sort of this like weird kind of quasi governmental but also private sort of thing and there are so many like companies and things like that that did their own like loyalty investigations they didn't necessarily have to do it but they did and so it shows the kind of wide level of i don't know buy-in for lack of a better word in this moment
0: yeah i think one of the ways we talk about mccarthyism or these red scares uh for a long time is that they uh got a lot of things wrong and were demagogic and like unfair and created cultures of paranoia but to your point about what a wide net it casts, is that I think somehow in that narrative, the thing that gets forgotten or skipped over is that all of those things that I just said are true, but they create that wide net. Mm-hmm. They create that Im- Im- imprecision because it's, that's how that type of idea proliferates, mm-hmm. is that it has to absorb a lot of people who are innocent or have literally no connection to anything that's going on. Because that's just the almost psychological structure of that type of inquisition.
2: And I mean, now we're getting into like stuff I wrote about in my first book, but it's also very like this question of loyalty. What is loyalty? Like, because it's loyalty is beyond just like actual acts of subversion, right? Loyalty is what you think and what you feel. It's this, has this very intangible kind of quality, right? when you're doing like loyalty boards or expecting loyalty oaths. And so one thing I write about in my first book, and this was very inspired by a scholar named Andrew Friedman, who wrote this great book about ideas of citizenship in the Cold War, is the way in which the late 40s and early 1950s, democracy and citizenship were defined as this kind of psychological structure that just rights and institutions and things like that were not enough to have like really true like democracy. People have to be like, psychologically strong and vigilant and capable of distinguishing between propaganda and real democratic ideas. And I see the obsession with loyalty in this moment also shows how deep these fears of like internal kind of psychological subversion ran. In this time period there's a lot of emphasis, for example, in the early Cold War on like freedom of thought. When the US is like occupying Japan and rewriting Japan's Constitution, they like write freedom of thought into the Constitution. And so this idea that like Democracy can't just be about rights. It can't just be about voting. It has to be about free minds. And the inverse of that then is this fear that like totalitarianism is not just about physical entrapment, but about mental entrapment and sort of mental subversion
0: right it seems to be building on some of the uh mass psychology fears that were happening at the time um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and this is was what like,
2: psychology was like as a pe- like really, yeah, had the really mainstream.
0: yeah really ascending and also um uh how do i want to put it um you know the authoritarian personality
2: yep as oh, an exactly. archetype yes. for who yes. like but, i talked about even, that in the introduction of my book yeah yeah
0: and even though you know adorno et al are like now there is a total society critique here. That reference that they make to that, uh, or the tip of the hat to it, is sort of buried in the 900 pages yeah. of only looking at the um, individual. And, and instead
2: t- it's like the possibilities of fascism are inside us all.
0: Yeah, fascism lives in our hearts every single yeah. day. It seems to me like there is a shift that starts to happen, and this is something Toure Reid Reed talks about, in his um, Toward Freedom, The Case Against Race Reductionism, where he looks at like Oscar Handlin um, and the Moynihan Report and things like that. There's a Mm -hmm. shift away from any sort of political economic thinking towards these sort of um, the melting pot cultural groups thesis, right? And that has a relationship to how we uh, as as Americans think about and engage with East Asia. in the latter half of the 20th century. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and get with it.
2: Yeah. So that was a big point of the article on neoconservatives and Confucianism, which was like exploring. I got into this article because I read this book by this guy named Frank Gibney, who in, was not, I don't think was a neocon, but was very engaged with like Daniel Bell. And he was part of this like huge cottage industry in the early 80s of writing books about Japan and trying to explain Japan to kind of American audiences. And there's what tons is the of Eastern mind. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Lots of references to geisha and kimono and things like that. Um, you know, some of these are by top scholars like Ezra Bogle's Japan is number one. And some of these are by people who do not have that scholarly background. Now, Gibney had actually spent a lot of time in Japan, but he wrote this book uh, that was called Miracle by Design and he made a reference to Confucian capitalism. And I was working on other stuff at the time and I was sort of like, huh. And I filed that away. And then as I started researching it and reading other things about this kind of there was a big Confucian boom in scholarship in that time period, I discovered that neocons were one of the group of people that engaged in this claim that East Asian growth was due to the Confucian tradition. So that was what I ended up exploring in the article. And in the article, I talk about how this is a big moment for developing kind of cultural explanations of economic growth and wealth and poverty, and that it dovetails with a couple of other things. It dovetails with the Moynihan Report and the rise of so-called culture of poverty discourse within the United States that's happening as a reaction to kind of the welfare state and the great society, and that is saying it's not that the United States is systematically racist, it's that poor Black people in particular don't have the cultures or the familial structures that promote sort of growth. And then I also, in the article, argue that it dovetails with, or it's useful in critiques of capitalism on a global scale, in the 1970s, you have a lot of these critiques coming in the form of this thing called the new international economic order, which is proposed by a bunch of countries uh, in the global south at the UN. And it's a proposal to sort of radically remake the global economy to undo the ravages of imperialism, and colonialism. And for neocons, the idea that East Asia is growing due to culture is very convenient as a way to push back against them because they say it's not about you know, transnational capitalism, imperialism, or anything like that. It's just all about culture. And they don't, these, you know, Latin America doesn't grow because it has the wrong culture. Uh, Novak, Robert, or Novak was really into that. Yeah,
0: it seems like like a, neo, no, it's, it's... A, a neo-Montesquian idea, almost, because, like, Montesquieu has that whole thing in the spirit of laws where he's, like, in more southerly climates. Like, they just yeah, like oh, to have yeah. sex and not work.
2: And like yeah, yeah, and some of them, I mean, the climate theory of, like... That's like comes back. That's, you know, a long standing thing. And some of them engage in that quite explicitly. They're like the hardy climates of Japan and Northern Europe do this and this, but the languid climates of Latin America, you know, they don't, they don't know how to work hard. But what this then becomes as, um, and what I was interested about in the article was being able to attribute economic growth to culture and I put air quotes around it there, is a way to then undermine and deny the impact of structures. And that is what they're ultimately interested in doing. They And I think back to our sort of discussion about like Trotskyism and, and the new class. They have this interesting relationship with structures where they're willing to acknowledge the importance of them in some ways, but then seek to completely undermine them in others. And so with their emphasis on culture it's a way of saying we don't need to reassess the structures and I think in the 70s right these men are feeling that these structures are under assault in many different ways so they're under assault in terms of like on the international scale in terms of decolonization and something like the new international economic order that is saying the global order is fundamentally unfair and needs to be overturned. And of course, there's fears, right, that there's going to be like land nationalization programs that companies are gonna be kicked out of various countries and things like that, like what happened in Cuba after Castro came to power in the early 60s. So that's on the international level. There's fears of this at home with the racial, the civil rights movement and the racial justice movement, feminism and the gay rights movement. And so a lot of their thinking too is about what we're seeing being attacked as like the bourgeois family and sort of men's white male position in society and white male handle on power in American society. So for them, that sense that there was a crisis that was resulting from these structures being attacked at home and abroad and by structures, I mean economic structures, political structures, structures of gender and sexual order, all of those, they felt that all of those were under attack. Many of them being academics had experienced the student movement in the late 60s and were like very sort of shaped by that, the feeling they were under attack on their campuses by these students who were not, who were these upstart students who were supposed to learn from them. This turn to culture becomes I think kind of their answer in a way
1: it was really interesting for me I get it's why I think I brought up that they were like many of them trained sociologists at like well-respected institutions mm-hmm. because the things that they advance almost strike me as just like total non-sequiturs like <laughs> I'm talking about one thing and you're like they're like you know not a hardy enough constant like they're too um you know bucolic or so, like I don't know like just weird stuff that like makes no sense and some of the quotes I just was like I mean it's talk- interesting
2: because it's like quite a historical yeah <laughs> their explanations and also it's like very very cherry-picked mm-hmm. in terms of like their evidence
1: Um, South Korea was just like, you were insane or like maliciously. (laughs) Yeah,
0: it was. John, John told me about that because we've been, we're planning to do a a series next year on South Korean industrial development. And so we're just beginning our research now.
2: Oh, you should interview um, Patrick Chung. He's a, I would
0: love to, yeah. He great. is a
2: historian at University of Maryland who's writing a book on like global capitalism through US South Korea and like US military spending in South Korea turning into like Hyundai factories opening in the United States
0: that's uh, perfect wow. thank you yeah. yeah that's great um but john john sent me like the quote because i hadn't oh i've got it
1: right it. here let's just put it on the record um, yeah because so well, we're starting out with you here but it's Berger turned his attention to east asia noting that there had recently been phenomenal success in places such as south korea and taiwan development he reminded his reader was the result of effort hard work and ingenuity such efforts could not and should not come from the state but from enterprising individuals, families, clans, compadre groupings, and other traditional units alongside more modern associations such as cooperatives and credit unions. And it's like sort of insane to me that you look at like the Park Chung-hee government and are like, oh, that was like compadre groupings when they're literally like threatening CEOs of major corporations to like get them to line.
2: Oh, Herman (laughs) Kahn has a whole long thing about that in – world economic development which is an extremely extremely long <laughs> book that i don't recommend anybody read <laughs> yeah. but i read the whole thing and it was impossible to even get like one one thousandth of the craziness of that book into this article yeah. um, <laughs> because, but because he writes Park extensively is like... about that like the new village movement and things like that and how admiring he is of it
0: Yeah, because Park is basically like, if you don't get your ass back here and build me a shipping industry, I'm going to kill your whole family. And it's just like, (laughs) oh, man, like, I love just inserting capitalism into a, uh, like, a cultural formation, and also the amount of, like, CIA help and stuff like that. Yeah, well,
2: I mean, what's interesting about their choice of East Asia, right, and what a lot of these debates in the 80s made very clear, as we talked about with Reagan earlier, is that... Um, a lot of there are a lot of observers at the time and scholars sense that attribute this growth to industrial policy or the so-called developmental state. Right, a turn, and I mentioned that very briefly in the article. But you have writing at the same time, political scientists like Chalmers Johnson, who are explicitly writing against this cultural argument. They say that is just a load of whatever, and that what we really have to think about is how you have a state that works very closely with the private sector to guide economic development. Now, in some places, that. Close work is more authoritarian, one might say. And in some places, that close work is less so. But there's a lot of people at the time that are writing about that. They are not interested in that explanation, right? They are much more interested in this more ahistorical cultural explanation that they're able to mitigate against various critiques and as the point I make in the article too, it doesn't mean they think that the U.S. should then become like East Asia culturally. What they say is what this shows is that we need to return to our own traditions and for them that tradition is they're all Big fo- followers of Weber. For them, that tradition mm-hmm. is the white Protestant ethic.
1: Yeah, right? it's strikingly like unsophisticated in a way. Yes,
2: <laughs> um, um, that is. I think that's true about a lot of <laughs> neoconservative thought.
0: They really rely on America being, I would say, a, a very like parochial and provincial type of culture that isn't necessarily initiated in the histories of other nations. Because if you're even just passingly familiar um, with some of this stuff, you're reading. Uh, like the Khan or whatever. And you're like, this is like, how could anyone honestly believe this? Like, it stretches credulity.
2: I'm I'm actually really interested in Khan because he is... fascinating. He is not written about as much in the neoconserv in the literature of neoconservatism and i sort of went back and forth on whether or not i could call khan a neoconservative and i decided i could um because he was so engaged with some of these concepts like the new class and stuff like that and also because khan you know was well known at the time as being sort of this like interpreter of japan he had he was one of the first people Americans to speak very openly in the U.S. about kind of that Japan's economic rise was coming. And he did that from Department of Defense forecasting. I it was actually where he got those ideas. Um, But I find him really interesting because they were doing all sorts of like corporate education programs and stuff like that in the 70s, Mm. the Hudson Institute. And they had they actually had an office in Japan and he traveled a lot. And like he traveled a lot, it seems a fair amount to like Japan and things like that. And I talk a little bit in the article about the people he associated with in Japan. One of them, this guy named Kaze Hireki, who's now at, like a very leading figure in um historical revisionism in japan and what that essentially is is basically claiming that world war ii was actually this like glorious moment when japan was trying to liberate asia there were not comfort women all of those things kaze is a leading figure in that so i find it very interesting that khan was associated with those kinds of circles In the 70s, but I'm also interested, like, what was going on in these corporate education programs? Like, what were they, like, all these big companies, according to this memoir I read by someone who was associated with Kahn, who also edited a book on the new class that, like, Berger and others published in. I think Gene Kirkpatrick published in it as well. Um, I want to know, like, what was going on in these corporate education programs? Like, what did you pay the Hudson Institute and Herman Kahn to learn in the 1970s? (laughs) Yeah. I would really like to get into Hudson's archives. I haven't, uh, with COVID, I haven't asked them and I have no idea if they let, I've heard they don't let researchers that in. That would be,
0: like I mean, that would be amazing. I hope that happens. Um, you know, the thing that I found really interesting is there's one very oversimplified version of, I think, the neocon reality, the rise of e which is sort of like a, uh, I would say a, a facile version of maybe a white gaze argument mm-hmm. um, that totally obscures the fact that, as you point out, there, were, there was a whole bevy of like japanese scholars who were like forwarding the ideas that these guys were then picking up
2: oh yeah and and that was another thing i found really interesting yeah
0: and like i just got um uh akio i forget i forget his, his last name made in japan it's sort of his memoir of running sony before and so did, when I, I yeah, when I, when I got that, um, of course the algorithm started to suggest all of these other books that were out of print from the same area. And there's a whole slew of people from East Asian companies who are big in business and writing these books where it's just like West mind, East mind, mm-hmm. or like, you know, stuff like that. Um, because there was a whole like managerial class from Asia that now became important in the us mm-hmm. because they were trying to figure out how to compete. So it was like a lot of people that had their own, uh, uh, culturally specific reactionary ideas about the splits here. And that there seemed, this was like the Congress of like non sequitur, like uh, irrational <laughs> reactionary ideas about how their own countries had developed. And I thought that was very bizarre. To read yeah, it's,
2: I thought that, I found that aspect really interesting how much the influence of this literature that's called Nihon Run, that's about mm. like essentially the essence of japanese and it is a literature that starts to arise in the sixties and seventies when Japan like enters this phase of high-speed growth and it becomes very clear that Japan is going to be a major global economy. Um, and so all it's all seeking to explain why Japan was able to do this um, or that's the backdrop. It's not all specifically about Japan's economic success, but that's kind of a crucial backdrop to this. And of course, it is it attributes a lot of this to culture and it has these common tropes that then scholars like Nathan Glazer just repeat uncritically and so like one of the major tropes of nihonjinron is that japan is this homogenous country which and it doesn't have like minorities or anything like that that is not true um that and that hum- And they're racially homogenous and culturally homogenous, and that dates back to its long standing period on a small group of islands and communalism dates back to rice cultivation and things like that. And scholars like Glazer, you know, they're reading like Nakaneche's Japanese Society, which all of these people read, and they're just sort of repeating uncritically these claims about what Japanese culture is like. And so on the one hand, I think some of that reflects kind of their lack of knowledge about Japan, right? None of these people were trained as East Asia scholars with the exception of Robert Bella, who I don't write about extensively. There's a very interesting article about him by a scholar named Amy Borovoy, who talks about how influenced Bella was actually by like interwar debates about imperialism in Japan. but none of them are trained as East Asia scholars. and But even if they were, they may have still picked up some of these ideas. I mean, we see some of that today. Um, but I found that really interesting. Another person they absolutely love is Lee Kuan Yew, the prime minister of Singapore, who has worked very hard to kind of set Singapore apart from other sort of global South critiques of transnational capitalism and write um, and works very hard to like keep Singapore's relationships with other countries. Herman Kahn loves him. In like the intro to um, World Economic Development, he specifically mentions that Lee Kuan Yew gave a speech at the International Chamber of Commerce, and he recommends that everyone read it. And so I like went and found it and originally had worked it in there, but I, I wasn't able to. And Lee Kuan Yew is also talking about how Singapore grew through being open to relationships with like the United States and Europe. So essentially, rather than turning their back on their on former colonizers and things like that they were open to working with them through family through hard work through discipline through work ethic and so there is sort of this like trans-pacific conservatism going on that I found very interesting where all of them are parroting these essentialist narratives about their own country's past that are all parallel with each other in certain yeah. ways and thus make them want to take up each other's to prove that to prove their points proof wasn't not
1: easy to untangle but i got the sense that lee Kuan yu is probably the most instrumental figure in the propagation of this stuff like across the world in terms of you mentioned that he sets up a confucian school curriculum mm-hmm. which is then mm-hmm. sort of wholesale adopted by taiwan and south korea and I know that he learned Chinese later in life and I think the idea that Singapore was kind of like one of the inheritors of scenic civilization was pretty important to him in some ways I think and maybe he was like instrumentalizing it in this really specific kind of I guess we'll say like global reactionary sort of way or something because it is at least culturally conservative because I think he is very much into like These values and these things make us strong And who we are But Mm -hmm. obviously there's no reticence In Singapore to like Use the government to any and all ends Which is sort of like Completely unthinkable to like American Conservatism Um at least the ends to which he used like all housing being pretty much a government owned, like yeah, would never yeah. fly okay, here. Yes. I like was the idea more of that like Singapore cracking
2: down on dissent and things like that. But Yeah,
1: I think Singapore marries cracking down on dissent with the government will take care of you if you fall in line, which is not something that really you find in a lot of other places, at least in terms of this kind of thinking. I think
2: You didn't see that that much in American conservatism in the 70s, but I think in a way that is what American conservatism is becoming now. There's not these explicit promises that the government will take care of you and like provide housing and things like that. But I do think American conservatism now is very focused on who is allowed to have access to economic structures that in the United States are still very much shaped by government policy. So here I'm thinking like housing and home ownership or um, tax policy, which is still very preferential toward marriage and things like that. Hmm. Um, and like who gets access to that and who doesn't. I do think that there's a whole nother like, and to like go back to kind of tracing my economic, my intellectual passage to this, to getting to this article. I read this article that a China scholar named R.F. Derlich had written in 1995. It was called Confucius on the Borderlands, and it was one of the early reflections on kind of this Confucian boom that had shaped East Asia scholarship, especially scholarship on China in the late 70s and 1980s and he that was where I first got on to Khan and Peter Berger because he talked about both of them he didn't talk about the neocon angle he just talked about how they had both written these books about Confucianism and development and they both talked about it and I was like oh I'll go check those out of the library and then it was I was reading Khan, and he was citing Irving Kristol a lot and I was like I should I should look into this more it really was like following looking at what were in his footnotes and kind of tracking, like following the trail but the point that was making was a very different one, which was about kind of, the way that this Confu this rise of Confucianism was very much shaped by Asia itself so by figures like Lee Kuan Yew right adopting um Confucianism curriculum and actually consulting with scholars like Tu Wei Ming who were based in the United States for that the amount of funding that was coming out of places in not just in the United States but in Asia for various like conferences and things like that the conversations that were going on um and so on some level American neoconservative adoption of this isn't made up out of like thin air, it's adapting these trends and discourses that are going on elsewhere. On the other hand, they're adapting it not out of some like innate interest in Asia necessarily Although many of these men, Daniel Bell in particular, actually did have just a lot of interest in Japan. And this was really common in this time period in the 60s and 70s, that people that had no formal training on Japan would just suddenly decide they need to learn and write about Japan. And so like David Reisman, Reisman, who wrote the, uh, what do you write, The Lonely Crowd? um, Yeah, he writes, uh, he has, he spends time in Japan in the 60s and writes a book about it.
0: Mm.
2: Uh, Brzezinski in the early 70s is like, I don't know what to do with myself. I'm, uh, I'll, I'll just write a book on Japan. Like, this is like quite a common thing.
1: And Alexander Kujov. Yeah, Alexander <laughs> Kujov. You know,
2: like, I, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, spend. I gotta do something with Japan.
0: Yeah, I mean, we, so what's interesting is, is Bell and um, Brzezinski are both members of the commission on the year 2000.
2: Oh, yes, yes. And
0: Brzezinski makes sort of like the national defense case for horizontalizing supply chains. And Bell is, of course, already preempting a post-industrial society Mm -hmm. with his own cultural concerns about that at the same time that, um, what's the name? Galbraith has already written The Affluent Society by this point. But he has more like materialist concerns, I would say, about things like that and also in the new industrial state. But these things are sort of happening at the same time.
2: Mm-hmm. And I actually, like, I got the year 2000, and, like, futurism, there, futurism is another interesting, like, backstory here that I just, like, couldn't work into it, but that's also how, like, Bell and Khan are connected through, like, their interests in, like, futurism and kind of futurist networks and things like that that are going on at the time, and Khan often is, like, when you look him up, he's, des- he's described as, like, a nuclear strategist and futurist, and that yeah, was Yeah, that's of sort of
1: how he got initially he famous- making-
2: Yeah, that's kind, and that's like, that was what these like corporate education programs that they were doing were about. Like that's how he was, that's how Hudson was making some of its money in Mm. Hudson being the institute that Khan founded is how it was like doing these like the future of the global economy, these like corporate education programs in part premised on like Khan's reputation as the man who predicted the rise of Japan.
1: Yeah, his his book at Rand about nuclear war, I think, uh, I never knew that it existed, but he said that nuclear war was both fightable and winnable and mm-hmm. made a lot of specific suggestions on how we could harden ourselves for a nuclear exchange and then win it. And it horrified a lot of people to read that because he was anti-mad, the mm-hmm. whole like idea that von Neumann had of if it's mutually assured destruction, we won't fight. And Kahn was like, no, we can fight and win.
2: Well, um, yeah. oh, that's yeah. why... Dr. Strangelove is ostensibly based on Herman yeah.
1: yeah. All we have
0: to do is turn the entirety of Europe into like an acceptable sacrifice zone. Yeah. Cold <laughs> <Love> War <work> struggle, <laughs> and we will win. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of like various conversations going on around all of these issues, but Japan is kind of at the center in various ways. East Asia, in the 70s, Japan in particular, are kind of at the center of a lot of them. In One thing I,
1: ways. to talk about Japan, um, you point out that in Nakanechi's book, which we have as Japanese society, Confucianism is not really important, but it is in other authors. And there, so there's more of a I would say I got the impression that like Nihon literature, sort of, it was sort of like Japanese-ness. Yes. That was yeah. important to being Japanese. It's but not there's Confucianism no way for everyone. Yeah. There, yeah, there's no way to say that anyone who's not Japanese has the Japanese-ness. So there's kind of a like, well, it's also sort of Confucian. And then you grandfather in these other acceptably like capitalist East Asian nations into this like broader idea of like successful cultural zone or something like that. But it like for background, I guess I'll say that I'm like more than passingly familiar with both like the Confucian canon and like generally Imperial Chinese history. And it's sort of like, you know, a lot of what is being said, I think on both sides feels almost like completely disjoined from that history in a way like i think peter Berger may have been the one who said that confucianism lends itself to a positive estimation of wealth and i was like that's really like weird like one of the and you know one of the big social features of um the joseon dynasty which was the last you know korean dynasty until japan colonized them was like a profound hatred for the merchant class and they were immiserated at every turn.
2: And critics at the time pointed those contradictions out. Um, Definitely. And it, again, I think they just sort of, I think because for so many of the neocons, at least their starting point was Max Faber. And so And for so many other people, their starting point was Max Weber, because Max Weber had said Confucianism and Taoism cannot spark economic growth. I think Mm. I think Weber's scholarship on Asia is probably lesser known than the Protestant than his writing about the Protestant ethic. But he also wrote a book on the religions of Asia, and he explicitly said that they will not have they like do not have the like the mental state. For economic growth. But I think because for so many of these neocons, they were and Berger is very explicit about this, that he's like committed to Weber um, because that was their starting point. They're like looking for a stand in for that. Like they're looking for a stand in for like Protestantism. And I think that leads them to be quite accepting of these broad claims about Confucianism because they're already willing to accept kind of these broad claims about Protestantism right
1: yeah they deal in broad claims
2: yeah exactly exactly that's a very good way to put it and i mean i think it's it was striking to read in this how much the protestant ethic was just taken as an article of faith so like michael novak who is writing about like catholicism and is very critical about catholicism in some ways is one of the people who like is very much like protestants in a Protestantism leads to growth, but only certain kinds of Protestantism. And he's very explicit about this. It's very racialized for him. He has a um, a section in his um, Spirit of what's I'm forgetting the name of the book, the Spirit of Capitalism book, hmm. um, where he says explicitly emotional black American Protestantism does not lead to capitalist growth. That is the wrong. That's what he calls it. It's too overly emotional. Yes, yeah, too exactly. That is the yeah. wrong kind of <laughs> Protestantism. Yeah. What you need is this hardy northern European Protestant white Protestantism. Mm-hmm.
1: I just think and suppress my emotions and growth um, happens.
2: Yes, apparently. <laughs> um, and so they're, like looking, they're like looking for a stand in for that, essentially. You know, another thing that didn't make it into the article, but that was surprising to me, I also read much of the work of Samuel Huntington. Mm. Um, because, you know, he in Clash of Civilizations says there's going to be this clash between Confucian civilization and Western civilization. And Huntington says Japan is its own civilization. Um, I didn't end up using Huntington because his take on Confucianism is a little different than everybody else's, even though it very much is emerging from this mindset. It's emerging from this idea that if culture leads to growth, right? If economic growth comes from traditional cultures, that mm-hmm. means that globalization is not going to bring the cultural, the world more culturally in common with each other, mm-hmm. right? We're not going to be living on the flat earth or whatever that Tom Friedman was predicting. But instead, you're going to have even more cultural distinction, and that's inherently going to lead to clash. So essentially, wealth is not going to create peace, kind of. It's mm-hmm. going to create more conflict because it emerges from culture. But Huntington himself, too, is a big acceptant Acceptor of like the Protestant ethic and not just capitalism, but also democracy. So, thinking about, we talked about South Korea, Huntington is very clear. He's like, South Korea had a democratic revolution because of Christianity is what he basically argues in the book before Clash there of Civilizations, it is. the third wave is what it's called, which I was, I mean, I always knew like Huntington was like problematic because I read clash of civilizations. I went to college in the late nineties. Um, but it was really interesting to read like how problematic and a historical the work of this guy who was at the top of the field mm-hmm. was.
0: Well, so here's, here's a question that I had when reading all of this. So, you know, I'm in college a little bit after you, you know, um, I vote for the first time for Barack Obama in 2008, right? This is like a a huge moment for me. But I grew up during like the Iraq War era. And it seemed to me in reading this that the idea of Protestantism being forwarded by neoconservatives in the 60s, 70s, and 80s was very different than the American Protestantism that became mainstream with this very same group in the Iraq War. To quote John Dolan about it, American Protestants uh love jesus but jesus is just another word for america so here's the image i have in my head right and i just this is sort of like an open-ended question i don't know where i'm going but i remember the movie jesus camp Mm -hmm. Mm. and it closes with this really depressing monologue of this uh the woman who runs it being like i love america i love american culture and it's the interview's happening as she goes through a car wash and then at the end of the car wash like the windshield gets cleared And it just looks out into a vista of, like, chain stores forever along the highway. And she was just like, I love our way of life. And I was like, what? Like, I don't know what this is. I don't know what's happening. I don't know if you have any instincts on, like, how that starts to shift based on what's convenient, maybe, for the neoconservative movement or what.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think part of it, too, is that, like... On the one hand, these neocons are talking about like the Protestant ethic and Weber and things like that, but they're not necessarily like evangelicals, right? So there are different strands in American religion that are also rising to the fore and into politics at this moment. And they're not quite the same, I think, is what I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I've just finished, I'm thinking about this because I just finished reading this book by this guy named Robert Self called All in the Family, It's about like uh, discourses and debates about the family in the 70s and 80s. And he talks a lot about the rise of kind of the religious right, essentially. And, you know, I think there is a relationship here, right? They're emerging out of some of the same concerns about like moral decay and moral decline. But the like the neocons, for example, they're not writing a lot about, at least not in what I read. And I should be clear, I did not read their entire oeuvre, but In what I was reading about for this, you know, they're not writing a lot about, you know, they're not writing a lot about like abortion, for example, whereas, right, the religious right, that is a massive issue of coalescence in the 1970s. Now, I do think if anything in the article, I could have played up more the fact that feminism was a huge force shaping this. That's most obvious in Herman Kahn's writing, who talks about, you know, like, how he had, like, how Confucianism means that wife and husband know their place in the family, for example.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that sounds, that sounds about right. I mean, and so
2: I think you, you can see a little bit of overlap uh there, but we haven't, they haven't quite gone down the road of, like, the Jesus camp cultural conservatism, and I think in some respect, right, they don't, they're, like, their vision of Protestantism isn't this, like, overly emotional. Now that said, you know, a lot of neocons we know then go on to serve in like the Bush administration Mm -hmm. and become a big part of the Iraq war. For example, these are people like Richard, for example. Um, And I think one thing scholars have struggled with and not fully answered is that neocon is this like very capacious umbrella that there is not necessarily unity fully underneath it. Um, one of the like books on this guy, Justin Weiss, this French scholar who's written on neocons thinks of it as kind of three eras of neocons. And what I'm writing about is what he kind of defines as the first era of neocons, which are ones who saw themselves the way Vice defines it. I'm not sure I fully agree with him, but that saw themselves as kind of guardians of Cold War liberalism. Hmm. I, so, I, I don't quite, I don't 100% agree totally, with that. Totally. But it's helpful. It's a it helpful is, model. It's I would helpful. Say. And then at the same time, you have kind of a new group coming to the fore that are people like Gene Kirkpatrick, that's somewhat right with this group, like I mentioned, that Kirkpatrick had written about the new class, but then are also going into the Reagan administration and things like that.
0: Yeah. So that's actually helpful because I think to me, the tension that we're seeing now, um, is the breakdown of the Goldwater fusion, mm-hmm. which took the sort of the free market libertarians, the like American Protestant conservatives, and then the imperial neocons, and that's basically the, these three circles of this overlapping Venn diagram, that starts there. And there, of course, there's all this infighting and difficulty, and ideological overlap and uh, disaggregation from these groups. But it seems to me like that. Compromise gets rearticulated in an interesting way after nine eleven.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't know if I. I don't know if I take it all the way back to Goldwater. I think it's more Reagan, maybe. Okay,
0: fair enough. Yeah,
2: because yeah, we forget how much like some people saw Goldwater as a real extremist. Not everyone, but some.
1: Sure. Sure.
2: Um.
0: Yes. Okay. So back to then. Back to back to Reagan. At least there, there seemed to be the the three legged stool yeah, uh, that we yeah, got used yeah. to in conservative politics. Seems to be undergoing yet another totally baffling permutation that has made even looking backwards at some of this stuff a little bit difficult for me anyway
2: yeah and i think i mean that's what like i think that's part of what like being a historian kind of is right that's why we can keep writing history Mm -hmm. not because and that's why we can keep writing new histories of periods that were a long time ago not because we write our history forward to the present right as historians we try not to be like I mean, we do think about the present, but you don't want to see the present as inevitable because that can lead you to write a history that is just sort of automatically leads to that outcome. But things happen in the present that make you say, huh, did we miss something? Is Mm -hmm. there some trend or something important in the past that made this present possible that we didn't see before? Or can we ask questions in a way that we didn't before? I mean, this is in part for historians like me who are writing much closer to the present, but that makes us ask new questions, right? That's one of the things that drives the writing of more history on times when there is already a lot of history written. There are other things that drive it, like new documents being released and things like that. But that is one of them. And I do think the Trump era i mean we've seen how much for example the trump era has prompted public discussions of things like reconstruction Mm -hmm. or of race riots um in race riots isn't the right word um but of racially motivated violence Mm -hmm. whether in like the 1920s or in the 1960s or something like that um and that makes whenever this happens that always makes historians think like are there are there things that made this present possible that we have missed in a mm-hmm. way um,
1: are you uh, familiar with peter zihon at all no he's he's like a think tank guy but he does a lot of presentations for all different kinds of organizations about the future of like global geopolitics now that we're in the trump era and one of the things that he says was that
2: oh he's so a I futurist guess, yeah I'm looking him up
1: so one of the things he says is that George Bush I, during his presidency, tried to get some kind of commission together to see like what is the point of this NATO configuration now that the Soviet Union is gone, and how are we going to transition into the new world? Because there's clearly not really any point to like a global military apparatus organized in this way anymore, but that really doesn't get off the ground and kind of is sidelined and so his kind of thesis is that um, I think even before the election in 2016, he was saying, like, one way or another, in his opinion, like, NATO will be winding down. The global, like, sort of guarantee of free trade by the United States military will be winding down because there is no longer an overriding meta narrative of like zero sum conflict between us and the Soviet Union. And so he starts to try and articulate some of the Trump administration in that vein. And whether or not I think that he's right, it did start introducing me to the idea of trying to understand like what's going on right now in terms of really long-term historical trends that mm-hmm. are as numerous as the mental constructs that we can create to encapsulate them, but that can, heart- like, can help to start to explain like, oh, like, that's why this is all going on. It's not just seemingly random and, like, mm-hmm. something that I can't understand or deal with, which is sort of, like, our overriding concern, I think, in trying to do this show and talk to people like you who are doing a lot of this work, you know, to help us understand that.
2: hmm mm-hmm. And so part of what I would argue, for example, if we accepted his frame, um, I don't know if I do, but mm-hmm. is that... Japan, for the United States and for many Americans, Japan's rise in East Asian growth helped make that possible. Mm. Like it became one of, I mean, Vietnam was a time when a lot of Americans questioned like, what is this all for? Um, But I think the rise of Japan in the 70s and 80s and this fear that, like, Japan was going to take over, that it was going to, like, be the largest economy by 1990 was another moment. And Trump, as I wrote about in that article, was probably one of the most public figures articulating that in the 1980s, saying things like, you know, he published – Trump loves to publish open letters. And he published this open letter – that's where the title of my article came from – where he's like – why are we paying to defend japan why are we allied with japan like they are destroying our economy and yet here we are like defending them with military bases when they could defend themselves and um i think that one thing i write about in the trump article and in another article i wrote is that like this becomes japan's rise becomes this very important moment to articulate these critiques of the post-war so-called liberal internationalist order of which nato is a very prominent example um, and i think that's important for making our contemporary world
1: it's yeah i think in a lot of ways we typically don't remember the cold war especially for those of us who didn't grow up in any part of it <laughs> yeah. so it can be very difficult to understand why some things took place or why some things weren't concerned. Sort of like, I think one of the things you see is um, it almost seems like people feel blindsided by China's growth, even though there was a lot for them to have witnessed in the 80s and in the 90s that seemingly they weren't concerned with. And we were often wondering on the show, like, did they just not pay attention? Like, why did they seem shocked that this country, which did everything a country would need to do to grow in the way that it grew? Seemingly went totally unnoticed by this group of people who are now very concerned about them Um, And I you think like well, this was during the Cold War So like who cared about like Chinese industry, you know in that way Like we were still kind of thinking about like what if the Soviets dropped the bomb today? Like just a completely different configuration of concerns
2: yeah, I mean, I think actually, you know, like in the, in the 80s, there was a lot of attention to China. But I think the, atten- the sense was not that China was going to become a competitor. The sense mm-hmm. was more this, like, what an economic opportunity this is going to be. Yeah. That has a very long history back to the 19th century, actually, mm-hmm. of Americans seeing China as this site where they can sort of make their fortune
0: Yeah, and in Ekblad's, like, The Great American Mission, um, like, um, uh, development, it's an American idea, from, like, the New Deal till Mm -hmm. um, now, that's one of the things he talks about is that all of the sort of uh, foundations that we're now familiar with is playing a big role in politics were international before the U.S. was international. Mm -hmm. So a lot Mm -hmm. of them did, like, anti-poverty types of campaigns in China You know, um, thinking with this in mind, and even with some of the same culturally and religiously, like reactionary ideas we've talked about and explanations for why China wasn't doing that and why it needed Christianity or whatever to be Mm -hmm. there. But all with this idea, I think, ultimately, that once it entered the marketplace... I mean, just how many customers could you yes, possibly yes. ask for?
2: <laughs> yes. That was that was the nineteen that was like the nineteenth century. Think how many singer sewing machines we could yes. sell. Yeah, yeah. We could sell in China.
0: And then th- like and then think about how many singer sewing machines we could sell to new Chinese Christians. Yes. it's um, yeah. <laughs> sort of what happens yeah. in like the twenties and thirties. Um so we're uh we've talked for a long time, I know yeah. uh, that you have, have to. Uh, yeah, you probably have to hop off, but I just wanted to thank you so much um, for coming on and talking with us, and I hope that we can do it again um, at some point, point. and also for your wonderful articulation of what being a historian, especially working with more uh, contemporary issues or ideas means because as John said I think it perfect echoed uh, part of what we're trying to do with answering the question why nothing feels possible anymore <laughs> so we really appreciate you fleshing all of this out and taking time out of your well thanks yeah, so thanks much for so having,
2: having me